Wait, wait, wait. So the story went from I found shrimp tails in my cinnamon toast crunch to he got canceled. Mm-hmm. I missed all of that. But the shrimp tails were real, right? Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. I'm Nathaniel Silver. And, and this, this is Model Talk. Talk. I ask with an inflection that as though it's a question. Is it Model Talk? Is it Model Talk? I don't know. I don't know that it's quite Model Talk, but it felt right. I mean, it's definitely model adjacent. So today's a big day here at 538. We launched our updated pollster ratings. And that is, of course, where we grade pollsters according to accuracy, transparency, and until today, methodology. So there's plenty to discuss in these updated pollster ratings. But the biggest headline is what was once the gold standard methodology of a live actual person making phone calls to landlines and cell phones is not the gold standard anymore. So based on the numbers that you crunched, Nate, that method of polling isn't systematically more accurate than some of the other methods. And in fact, in 2020, the most accurate pollsters used a variety of methods, including online polling, text messaging, and automated phone calls. I want to get into all of that. And for people who were excited about that model talk introduction, the place where the model comes into all of this is that these ratings aren't just a competition between pollsters, although I'm sure pollsters love getting an A-plus rating, these also affect how much weight polls get in our election forecast models. So lots to discuss here. Nate, I got to ask you, out of the gate, how does it feel to untether ourselves from the old live caller gold standard? It's a new world, man. Ann Seltzer is out. Trafalgar Group is in. No, I'm just kidding. Ann Seltzer still gets, I think, the highest overall grade in our ratings, although Trafalgar Group has moved from like a C plus to an A minus. So good congratulations to them. There's like actual news value in this segment. So maybe I shouldn't start with naming very obscure pollsters. Right. We'll get into those pollsters in a second. But can you just explain how you arrived at this conclusion? So the way I do the pollster ratings is I just kind of sit there, look at a stack of polls, think how I feel about it, you know, go get a sandwich and then like a fine jeweler appraise it and assign a grade. That's how it works. Wait, I thought you just said that there was news value here and we should be sincere. Okay. How we actually do it is we have a database with now more than 10,000 polls, which is basically every election poll in the final three weeks of an election campaign since 1998. So governor, U.S. Senate, U.S. House, presidential, general, and primary elections. We look at various metrics. There's a simple metric, which is just how close does the margin get to the actual result. If you have Biden winning by four and Trump wins by two in a particular state, that's a six-point polling error. But also we adjust for the fact of when the poll was conducted. It's easier to be right on spot accurate you know, on election day than three weeks beforehand. We adjust for the type of election in general. House races are more difficult than presidential races, for example. We compare a poll directly to others of the same race. So maybe everyone's off in one race, but you're the least bad poll, so you get credit for that, basically, at least in part. So yeah, run through some fancy math, try to have a fair way of judging how well a poll does relative to its peers. Okay, and so you've crunched all of these numbers, and you can determine various different things, like which kinds of elections do polls do the best in, et cetera. 
the headline here that we're discussing for the moment is which methodology is the most effective. And so you determined that amongst the different methodologies, right, there's that old gold standard of live caller, basically meaning a real person calls other real people on a telephone, either a cell phone or a landline. There's also, of course, like a recorded call that there's an automated voice on the phone and you just respond to the automated voice. There's text messaging. There's also online surveys, et cetera. So you looked at all of these different methods and you crunched down which are the most accurate. And so what did you find? Is it that none of them are more accurate than the other or is it now that text messaging is the best way to do a poll? You're using that word crunch a lot. Is, is Cinnamon Toast Crunch still on your mind, Galen? Um, it has been a week for Cinnamon Toast Crunch. I don't eat Cinnamon Toast Crunch. I just subliminally, you know, we make arbitrary choices of language. And like if the word crunch is in the back of your head. But I feel like crunching data, I mean, that's just what you do. Cinnamon data crunch. I mean, the idiom is kind of an odd one if you think about it, right? Wouldn't it be more like churning data, like in an urn? I don't know. Should we sell a 538 urn on the 538.com store? Which, by the way, is back up and running. People should head over to 538.com slash store. Okay, in all seriousness... I'm churning data. In all seriousness, which method is the most effective? Or are all of them equally ineffective slash effective? Let me put this carefully. I'd say that the method of a pollster alone doesn't inform you that much. There are better and more informed ways to judge how much you can trust a poll. Let me actually back up a little further. One issue is that it used to be that back in the day, polls had one consistent methodology that they would use all the time. Gallup is a phone poll. Rasmussen is an IVR poll. YouGov is an online poll. Now, it's not always so clear, right? Like Pew, for example, a famous phone pollster, now does most, maybe almost all their polling online. A lot of polls use hybrid methods. So Rasmussen, for example, will use an IVR poll, which is a robo-poll, an automated poll, where, hello, I am calling from Rasmussen reports. Press one for Mitt Romney, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But because those polls can only reach people on landlines, you can't place an auto phone call to cell phones in most states. They'll supplement that by using an online panel of some kind. Or you have text. Anyway, everyone's kind of being very promiscuous with their methods now, basically. So it no longer makes sense in the first place to assign one method to one pollster and said that would be at the poll level. So therefore, just to start with, if we assign Monmouth University a grade based on being a live caller poll, and then it turns out they're experimenting with doing online polls, then all of a sudden we kind of have an issue. The premise by which we graded Monmouth is, is not valid for that particular poll. So that's one reason to no longer rate polls just on the basis of, of their methodology, because the methodologies can change and be mixed and matched. But also, yeah, I mean, you don't really see in the data, frankly, recently or really over the long term either, you don't really see a clear link between method and who is most accurate. I mean, you might see some faint traces of things in recent elections, polls that are pure IVR, meaning polls that only call landlines have not done very well. It's not a huge sample. That might be a poll you probably shouldn't use at all. But in general, everyone's trying out different things and the methodology alone, again, won't tell you everything. Wait, so when was it the case that live caller polls were the gold standard and that there was a noticeable difference in accuracy? And for how long has that not been the case? What we found is that when we originally added this criteria to the pollster ratings is that live caller polls that called cell phones were more accurate. 
for a period of time, kind of a mark of quality was, do you call cell phones? Why is it a mark of quality? Well, because it's expensive to call cell phones relative to landlines. And in a world where like, you know, let's say 25% of the population has cell phones and 70% still relies on landlines, for Pulsar to say, we're going to bear extra expense because we think it's important to go the extra mile to reach these people on cell phones, then it was kind of maybe more a proxy for the overall budget of a poll than it was about the methodology itself. So when we designed that, it was more about cell phones than about live caller. What happened is that eventually everybody either abandoned live phone calls or called cell phones or did some hybrid method like Rasmussen where you find some other way to reach people who are not on landlines. So it kind of devolved from a cell phone standard as a mark of quality to a live caller standard. I don't think we ever necessarily had research showing that live caller polls in general were better. Right. It was live callers who call both landlines and cell phones. Do we have a sense of why this has all changed? It's just, is it simply, as you said, because everyone started iterating in different ways? Does it have something actually to do with talking to a live caller or people not picking up their phones? I am actually not sure it's changed. But here's kind of my frankly kind of slightly pessimistic theory, which is that as people have been more reluctant to respond to telephone polls, live caller polls have reverted to the mean. It's not that these IVR polls, these online polls are good so much as that the live caller polls are not as good as they used to be because it's just kind of becomes very hard in a world where response rates are low and there is bias in who responds to phone polls. So because online polls have plenty of issues, for example, right? They're mostly using non-probability samples, which means they recruit a panel. They try to create a representative sample within that panel, but it's not like randomly selected, like a, a random digit dial poll is supposed to be. You know, I mean, the pure IVR polls, as we've found, like are actually probably pretty junky. But if you're doing IVR and you're doing an online panel and you're kind of doing some creative waiting. And IVR, to reiterate, is like an automated person on the phone. IVR is, yeah. Hello, I am Rasmussen Reports. Please. I'm sorry. <laughs> right. I don't know. But like, You'd be good at that. You'd be good at that. <laughs> there should be like a contest for like who can do the best robot. It's like the reverse Turing test, right? Who can imitate like a robot IVR poll? Stick around after the podcast is over, folks. We'll have a competition. <laughs> but that's kind of my theory. Is like there was this once expensive but gold standard way to do polls and like that may not be working as well anymore. So therefore, everybody has to get their hands a little bit dirty in the data cauldron. Churn the data cauldron. God, we're going to end up with so many metaphors by the end of this podcast. Okay, so let's talk about what this means in the real world. Which pollsters did best in 2020 and what methods were they using? So and we should keep in mind that these sample sizes are fairly small. We're looking at polling firms that may have done 10 or 20 or 30 polls in 2020, and those results are correlated. You might poll the state several times, but the best poll overall based on just simply average error, meaning how close was your poll to the actual result, was Atlas Intel, who had an error of only 2.2 points on average over 14 polls, which is pretty good when the polls had a pretty bad year overall. Second are our friends at Trafalgar Group at 2.6. Then Rasmussen reports our other friends. We love them. 2.8 points. Harris Insights and Analytics, 3.3 points. Opinion Savvy slash Insider Advantage, 3.5 points. Emerson College, 4.1 points. 
Ipsos, who actually has been a 538 partner, 4.6 points, but that's the top performing group. Okay, so none of those polls are live caller polls. No. What kinds of methods do they use? Everything except live caller. <laughs> I mean, you have a mix of, and again, a lot of these firms now are like kind of mixing and matching based on a particular race they're surveying, but it's a lot of internet, it's some IVR, it's text messaging. Like one thing that probably is worth mentioning here, if you're doing like a complicated survey about racial attitudes in America, or how do you feel about 30 different major issues, you're revealing personal information about your health, for example. I mean, those polls, you probably definitely do want live caller polls. You have to have interviewers who are trained to like interpret ambiguous responses and coax the respondent through a very long survey. I used to do this actually. My first job, believe it or not, was mm. that I actually was an interviewer. I would go to a lab at Michigan State University, call people on the phone. It was people who had, had workers' comp claims. You'd have to ask them like, on a scale of zero to 10, how bad is the pain in your left finger? How about your right finger? Like literally you'd have to do this. And it was like auto workers who had fallen on hard times. Anyway, I digress. But like it requires like real skill to do these kind of long, complicated polls. And you probably want a live person doing it or online we can kind of curate the experience more carefully. These pollster ratings are meant for horse race polls. I don't know how you go about evaluating more complicated polls if there's no way to test them per se, but for the horse race, if you just want to know, are you going to vote for Trump or Biden, maybe polling is not so complicated. You just want to have a high response rate, make sure you're reaching the person you think you're reaching, know what their demographics are so you can balance them in your data cauldron. But you don't necessarily need the investment that you would for like a high quality survey about public opinion about many items in the news, for example. So this is intended for an important but narrow application for horse race polling. I would not necessarily extrapolate these conclusions out to other domains. Okay, but you said that in terms of asking people their opinions about potentially sensitive topics like racial attitudes, that in that case, you might want a live person on the phone. I've heard that one of the arguments about why text messaging or online polling might be more accurate sometimes is that people don't have as much shame or social pressure in expressing how they feel to their computer screen or to a robot or over text message as they might when there's an actual person on the phone and they may feel like that person is judging their opinions. I think the evidence for that is a little bit mixed potentially. I mean, there is some evidence for it. Like there is a lot of academic literature and social desirability bias going back a long time. Maybe I should not have picked the example of like racial attitudes because those are sensitive and an example of where... Mm -hmm. There could be some effects by mode. Well, actually, what things aren't sensitive these days? If you're right. doing a survey on how you felt about the healthcare system and you're asking a lot of questions about different single-payer systems and whatnot and your experience with the healthcare system, like there I think you'd want Kaiser Foundation to do a poll and not Rasmussen reports or something, right? Got it. I don't think the reason that these polls did better in 2020 is because that people were lying about their support for Trump. In fact, one thing it's a little interesting and surprising is that the polling was actually a little bit better in the presidential race than in races for Congress. So I don't know if there's like a shy generic Republican congressman vote, but like that's like actually bigger errors in those races than in, in the presidential race. It's probably more a matter of not reaching certain types of voters in right. the first place. If you're only getting a response rate of, of 10% or whatever, then it's pretty naive to assume 
that you're getting a representative sample that you can just kind of use these big major demographic categories like race, age, gender, and whatnot, and that that will cure kind of all the problems that you have. So I think we actually have some unpacking to do. To go back to when you were saying which pollsters did the best in 2020, you mentioned that Trafalgar Group and Rasmussen Reports are noted friends of the podcast. Probably sounds like an inside joke to most people. So let's explain what's going on here. First of all, a bunch of these pollsters do generally have a Republican bias, the ones who did the best in 2020. In an election where... Yeah, let me, let me, let me... No, am I wrong? Let's be careful about which terms we use. In the context of the pollster ratings, Republican house effects. Yeah, I know. You house got effects, me. You got right? Me. Yeah. House effects. Yeah. Yeah. So all the pollsters that had big Republican house effects, being they were more Trump or GOP friendly relative to the average poll, in a year where the average poll is off by four and a half points or whatever, then they're going to do well. So the Rasmussen's, the Trafalgar's, the Susquehanna's. Now, some of those firms also either have a history of having a, an actual bias in polls. Rasmussen actually has had a bias, the way we define it, in polls. And or they have a history of being boostery for Republican candidates and going away or being kind of publicly cantankerous in some ways. Some don't, like Atlas Intel, I don't think there's any bias in their, of any kind in their blood or whatever, right? But like, you know, obviously Trafalgar Group, if you go back and forth, I mean, they're kind of, doing polling and the guy's doing some degree of punditry, but like you have to give credit where it's due, right? Trafalgar Group has not been around that long. They, in 2016, were more bullish on Trump than the average, correctly in most cases. They did not have a great necessarily 2018. In 2020, they were more bullish on Trump than the consensus and they missed a few states, but they were closer on average than the average poll and they deserve credit for it, frankly. And then by the way, in the Georgia runoff, they were, did not have a Republican House effect. They were very much in line with the average, and the averages were very good. So that's what you'd like to see. You'd like to see a pollster that, hey, if in one cycle you're way off to the side and you're right, then we're not going to critique you at all for that. If every cycle, like Rasmussen reports, you're off in the same direction, and then you happen to have some really good cycles and then some really bad cycles, then I don't tend to give as much credit. But Trafalgar, as far as I'm concerned, they deserve their A- rating. I really, really, really wish they were more transparent. There are lots of issues with Trafalgar about like who their sponsors are that are problematic and that we'll have to consider. I mean, we got into like, they should have much better disclosure and transparency. But if you're judging based on results, then they deserve credit for having good results. Even though they like, in some cases, had Trump winning states he lost. I mean, if you have Trump winning a state by a point and he wins a state by a point, that was a good poll. If you had... Biden winning a state by 17 points, what did the ABC News, we love ABC News, and they had an actually decent year overall, but like this Wisconsin poll, they had like Biden winning Wisconsin by 17 points and Biden wins Wisconsin by one point. I mean, that poll is not going to help their grade, right? It doesn't. So yeah, giving some credit where it's due. Now, the question is like, how will that predict how they'll do going forward? I don't know. We'll have to see. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Well, first of all, do we owe Trafalgar an apology? I think they have in the butt of a couple jokes here on this podcast. Never apologize, Galen. <laughs> Never apologize. No, look, I think I have more respect for whatever it is they're doing. I'm not sure I know what they're doing, but I have more <laughs> respect for whatever it is they're doing. I apologize in the following sense, which is I think sometimes there's like, we have our method and we design the method carefully and the method gives a higher weight to pulses that are more accurate, but it's actually pretty ecumenical. Is that a word? 
actually, you know, yeah. pretty even-handed where it gives a little bit more weight to the highest quality pollsters, but like when Trafalgar has a new poll, then that will still influence the polling average in a state. I think there was like a lot of times when we were kind of like, oh, grumble, grumble, here's another Trafalgar poll and that knocked Biden's average down from plus 2.6 to plus 1.9. And, you know, I'm not really sure I believe that, but I guess we have to go with the method, right? And sometimes it's like kind of even more of a rationale for like trusting the process. Use systematic rules that are, you can turn into an algorithm and trust that algorithm instead of trying to superimpose on top of it and saying, oh, Trafalgar, they make it, but I wish they didn't. But like, there's a certain other like polling aggregator or forecaster that just had like a list of polls that they struck. They're like, these seven pollsters are evil and they their polls shall not appear in our polling averages. Like, that's exactly what you don't want to do. You want to like systematize and say, okay, we need a system of kind of like checks and balances, right? Because there are plenty of years where like 2012 or whatever, 2018, there are plenty of years where like the high quality pollsters kick butt and low quality pollsters don't, but there are years where that's not true, like 2020. And a good system of checks and balances, so to speak, means that like you're hedged in the right way so that Trafalgar Group, even when they have a C plus rating, will have some influence on the average. And now they also are rewarded now by having an A minus rating and they'll have more influence going forward. So we think it's like a thoughtfully designed system. And sometimes we kind of editorialize on top of that or try to have it like both ways. So here's what our model says, but here's the, you know, I think that never serves anyone's purposes well in the first place. And it probably reveals like our grievances and our biases and whatever else. So I, I apologize to uh, Trafalgar Group in that context. Oh, wow. That was an actual apology. But I want to nail down on the going forward part, because now Trafalgar will have more influence in our forecast. The elections, when they did well, were 2016 and 2020. That seemed to be like very particular years in terms of the way that polls underestimated Republicans, especially with Trump at the top of the ticket, because obviously in 2018 and in Georgia and in the Alabama special, et cetera, we have examples of your old school legacy pollsters doing very well. So what if these pollsters like Rasmussen, Trafalgar, et cetera, were kind of just dicking around in a way in 2016 and 2020 that worked out well for them when Trump is at the top of the ticket, but that may not be the case if he's not at the top of the ticket in the future. Like, is that a concern that we have? Or do you think that at least with Trafalgar, their methods are more durable than just a a Trump election? Again, if I got into like subjective, you know, when I hear the Trafalgar guys talk about how they do the polling, I don't want to apologize for them in one segment and then <laughs> throw shade at them Trash in the next segment. Them I mean, the- I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, here's the whole point. If I did like a sit-down interview with every pollster, and I don't have time to do that, we have like 400 pollsters we rate. If I did a sit-down interview with every pollster and tried to get a qualitative assessment of their methodology and then wrote down Nate's subjective grade... Do I think that would help predict how well the polls would do above me on the pollster ratings? I don't know. Maybe a little bit. But like, I think in 2020, if I'd done that, then I'd have put even more weight on some of these firms that did not have a good year, frankly. So, you know, the whole point about like an algorithm is you aren't necessarily solving like the last mile problem. You're always leaving a certain amount of detail out, but you're getting the big stuff right. You are getting most of the way there. You're having a coherent and consistent rationale. You have to think systematically about a problem, right? If we make an exception for this pollster, then we have to make a different exception for that pollster. And in general, I think people who think 
in terms of systems do better than people who for whom everything is ad hoc. So I do have ad hoc opinions about pollster. You know, I mean, another classic one is like Emerson College. They get kind of a lot of they use like Mechanical Turk and stuff like that that people don't like, but they continue to have pretty good years. Now, again, I think it used to be more that like there was a correct textbook way to do polling. And if you were willing to have the expertise in it and pay the expense for it because it was expensive, then that would work. Unfortunately, under current conditions, I'm not sure that the method would work anymore. Actually, what I think might work, to be super honest, is maybe polls that involve mail or door-to-door components like federal government surveys are probably quite accurate and have very high response rates. Mm -hmm. But apart from that, you know, if you're like a telephone survey in a world where people don't answer their phones very much from phone calls from strangers, then that gold standard method is no longer foolproof. It may still be better than the alternatives, but there's no longer a surefire safe way to have a super accurate poll. You mentioned mail or door-to-door, which is obviously even more expensive than live caller polls that also target cell phones. Do you have any other ideas of how pollsters can or should be innovating to get over the problem of people not answering their phones? Some polls have started to use email, which is interesting. I mean, you know, we live our lives mostly online. I think the text thing is kind of promising potentially it kind of has become like a fairly universal way to communicate. I mean, one thing that's true to here is like, I'm not sure that we ever really did live in that <laughs> golden era. It's hard to know, right? I mean, it used to be that like not every American had a telephone period, right? I mean, it's always a case that not everybody had a telephone, for example. You have infamous polling skews, people trying to do polls through magazines in the 1930s or whatnot, right? But like, I don't know if the golden era ever lasted that long necessarily. The other perspective would be that like, Polling has always been a challenge. Pollsters always have to innovate around it. It's never been as clean as the textbook says. And that polls have better years and worse years. And actually, statistically, it's not so clear that we've been on a downward trajectory. We had a very good 2018, for example. The polls were very good in Georgia. That's kind of the macro view. I mean, I think the macro view and the micro view are, are very different here. We're actually talking a little bit more of the micro view, the actual mechanics of doing polling on this podcast. In the article on 538, it's semi-provocatively taking a more macro view and saying, yeah, the polls weren't great, but it's kind of within normal bounds that you can model and whatnot. I did want to give our listeners the provocative headline about the gold standard polling and also the wonkier headline up front. But I also want to talk about some of the broader trends that you found in reassessing our pollster ratings. Before we do that, though, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. 
Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Nate, the last time we took stock of how the polls did in 2020, we were working off of our polling averages that we developed for the 2020 election. But when you actually rate pollsters, you have a much more in-depth process, looking back over a span of weeks, looking at a bunch of different polls. So after all of that, this more rigorous tallying of how all the polls did in 2020, has your view of the efficacy of polling in 2020 changed at all? Or how has it evolved? No, it hasn't changed very much. Because I wrote an article for the site like two days after the election was called for Biden. And it was kind of saying what I expressed a moment ago, which is like, yeah, the polls were kind of shitty, but like they were within the normal bounds of shitty. And that like the media was giving them more crap than was probably deserved. And that's probably what a, a deeper analysis reveals too, I think, frankly. So what is that deeper analysis? Like, how does 2020 compare with the other years that we rate pollsters by going back to 1998? If you go back to 1998, look at the average error. And this, by the way, this includes the entire 2019 slash 20 cycle. So includes presidential primaries, includes any special elections. It includes a Georgia runoff where technically 2021, but they were the resolution to a 2020 race. So they get qualified. So the average error between all those polls was 6.3 points, which is the third worst cycle out of 12. So 6.8 points in 2015-16, 7.7 points in 1998. Still though, across all years in our database, the average error is 6 points. So 6.3 is higher, but not that much higher. Judged by how many races did you call correctly, 79% of polls in the cycle got the right winner which is actually pretty decent and matches the historical average of 79% exactly. Again, there are a lot of states where like Joe Biden won Wisconsin just by not by nearly as much as the polls thought. He won the Electoral College, Democrats won the popular for the US House. So like the polls were quote unquote right in many cases, but with margins that were off. The bigger issue is with this bias, where on average, polls overestimate how well the Democrat would do by 4.8 points, including 4.2 points in races for the presidency. 5.6 for governor, 5 for the Senate, and 6.1 points for the U.S. House. That is the biggest bias we can find in either direction since 1998. There are years historically before this database begins, like 1980 and probably 1994, you had similar or larger biases, maybe like a seven-point bias in 1980 where the polls kind of missed the Reagan wave. But still, that's a pretty big bias. And that's, of course, the second presidential election in a row where we saw that bias. Although not the second election in a row, because the polls were unbiased, actually had a very slight GOP bias 
in 2017-18. That might seem like a subtle thing, but like people cherry pick a narrative a lot and they kind of ignore the fact that you had a year in 2017-18 where the polling was both very accurate and very unbiased. They also kind of ignore these Georgia runouts where the polling was both very accurate and very unbiased. Again, from the macro view, I get kind of very, I mean, I'm not a pollster. I'll get defensive, but I'm not a pollster. I'm someone who's like trying to evaluate how well polls do. For a macro view, it's kind of like, okay, you're putting an awful lot of eggs in this kind of one bad year or two bad years out of three or whatever after a very good year is the other year of that three. And like a coin landing heads two to three times or three to four times is like statistically not really something that you should get that excited about. Definitely. I totally understand that the midterm years were good. We've talked about that many times on this podcast, but in terms of those presidential years, right? But yeah, but like if the average American listen to this podcast, then that would be different than it's not what the average mainstream media reporter would think about the polls. They probably have no idea. I don't think even the average political reporter working for a mainstream media outlet has any idea how good the polling was in 2018. It's not widely known. Do you know why the polling was so good in 2017, 2018 and in Georgia? I don't know. I mean, I think you had like a lot of high quality people doing polling, like the New York Times upshot polls were really helpful in 2017, 2018. It was a fairly stable and boring race. It was fairly high turnout. I think high turnout helps. I mean, again, people like to in the polls. The polls were dealing with a lot of weird circumstances this year, including COVID. Like one theory for why the polls had a bad year is that Democrats were more likely to piously follow their social distancing requirements and stay at home. And when you're at home in the middle of a pandemic, you're so bored, you might actually answer a poll, especially really excited as Democrat about trying to get Trump out of office. And so um, polls kind of navigated a very challenging year in a way that wasn't great. Let's be honest, right? But like, I mean, in the primaries, we show the primary polls as having been not very good, but you also have this gigantic inflection point where, like, where all of a sudden Joe Biden gained, like, 30 points, like, one of the two largest ever in the primaries, along with John Kerry in 2004. But the polls of the Iowa caucus were actually pretty good. The polls of New Hampshire were pretty good. Those were pre-COVID, I suppose. But, like, I think people just kind of by default want to shit on pollsters when, like, like everyone else, we were dealing with a lot of unusual circumstances in 2020. Pollsters need a good attorney, and they have one in you. Wait, okay, I agree with what you're saying. I mean, saying. here's the asymmetry, though. The problem is these pollsters are like these very honest academics who are like, oh, no, we must do better. And like, they have to be more assertive, pollsters. Okay, but we are, people who <laughs> listen to our podcast know that we're not just like hackishly criticizing pollsters because we can or because that's just what internet culture is about. We are being more rigorous, and we're talking about this in a methodical way. And so there was something that went awry in 2016 and 2020, right? It may not be shocking because things go awry in polling on a regular basis and have for decades. But pollsters are still going to try to like evaluate why was there a systemic bias that underestimated Republicans, et cetera. And we've talked about that in podcasts in the past. I don't want to get into it too much right now, but we are going to be watching very carefully in the upcoming midterms and in 2024. Who knows where we'll all be in 2024? But like, do you think, for example, if there's a systemic bias that underestimates Republicans in 2024, that we can say, okay, there's something going on here that the polling industry just underestimates Republicans? Like, how many times would it have to happen in a presidential election before you can say, this is a signal and not just noise, to quote a friend of mine? 
<laughs> well, I would also look at midterm elections, right? I would not just look at presidential elections. I mean, this is not a perfect example, but like if you keep flipping a coin and it keeps coming up tails, at what point do you conclude that the coin is more likely to be biased or rigged than a fair coin? And the answer to that is you have to have some prior and you revise that prior under Bayes' theorem. I mean, look, is it noteworthy at all that the average person conducting a poll is probably a highly educated Democrat? Does that matter at all? To me, that would matter a little bit. I don't think I've ever talked about this exactly. And I don't talk about it in the article, but like, do people who in an environment where everything is polarized by education, to be a pollster, you probably have a PhD or some advanced degree, upper middle class probably might work for a university or for a newspaper or something like that. Does that affect things at all? Maybe, maybe. I don't think that's quite the question you were asking, by the way, but like, that's worth thinking about, I think. Okay. I mean, I still think that like, polls are the least biased part of the news operation usually. But, you know, I mean, if you kept missing in one side and that side was like the side that the average person conducting a poll tended to belong to, then, yeah, as a Bayesian, you have to, like, give that some weight. I don't think it's really what's going on here because, like, pollsters' much stronger incentive is, like, they get much less if they are and or are perceived to be accurate. One thing I'll criticize the industry for a bit, since I am inclined to be very forgiving and think, again, they do a vital service and do a great job for the most part. I do think there was a little bit too much faith in this like, oh, we have detected the problem from 2016 and solved it and put a bow around that, right? The problem being, okay, we just discovered the problem is like, we had too many college-educated voters in our sample and now we wait by education and now polling is perfect again. I think there was a little bit too much blind faith placed in that. I mean, it was correct. I mean, it is definitely better to do education waiting in polling, but from like a both a macro and a micro point of view. The micro issue is that like, even education is kind of maybe a proxy for other conditions that can still influence polls. So like the real metric that might influence kind of your support for Trump is your degree of, you know, people say social connectedness, for example, that people who have greater ties to their communities as measured in various ways tend to be more democratic and people who have fewer ties tend to be more Trumpian or Republican. Even when you control for education, the person who got a degree from a four-year college and then fell off the grid, demographic weighting can't solve every single problem that response bias is pertinent to, right? That's kind of the mm-hmm. micro problem. The macro problem is pollsters not acknowledging that polling is messy under real world conditions. Trying to live up to this gold standard textbook way of doing polling that simply isn't going to work as well in a world where most people don't respond to phone calls and there are big response biases of various sorts in who does. I understand why from like a marketing standpoint. I mean, again, polling is scientific. To me, again, any problem you talk about with the judgment calls that pollsters have to make is like 20 times worse for any kind of news story that appears on any major website, including 538, as well as for like, we should say, designing models, which involves making far more complex judgment calls than doing a poll. So we'd criticize ourselves there too. But like, not acknowledging that the real world is messy, that polling is a imperfect instrument, a good and necessary, but imperfect instrument is something that like, 
I think pollsters have trouble communicating that. Like, hey, get used to us being wrong some of the time. We're going to be right most of the time. We're going to help inform you, right? But it's going to be a little messy and we're going to have a bad election now and then. And that's okay. We don't have to self-flagellate every time we have a bad election. We don't have to promise that we've reinvented things and solved every problem every time we have a bad election. We don't have to buy the media narrative every time we have a bad election instead of saying, you know what, actually give us a mug on this one because we did actually call the major things right. We did say Joe Biden was going to be president. We did say Democrats would win Congress. Yeah, we were pretty nervous until Democrats won that runoff about Congress and and got kind of hairy there on election night. But like, we didn't get the big stuff right. And you criticize us when we're close in the margin. We got the big stuff wrong. So be consistent, media. But anyway, sorry, it's kind of like a little rant. All right. Fair enough. I posted the findings from our new postal ratings on social media shortly before we jumped on here. So we did get a couple questions that I want to post to you before we wrap things up. And this one was a good question, I thought, from Josh. He asks, low response rates to phone polls and the nature of online polling means that it's basically impossible to get a truly random sample. Should this change the way that we think about polling and have pollsters adequately updated their thinking and methods to reflect this? This kind of gets at maybe what you were just saying, but like, if we're kind of accepting that all the methods we have for polling can't find us a truly random sample, what does that say about polling more broadly? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, all pollsters are thinking about this, right? I think they're very thoughtful and they have incentive to be thoughtful and frankly, like more incentive than we have. If tomorrow Joe Biden banned polling and never had to look at a f-ing poll again, right? I think it'd be really bad for democracy, but I couldn't be happier to go find something else to do, right? If you're a pollster, that wouldn't be very good for business. But like- What would it be? What would you do, Nate? Go play poker or something. Write a book. Write a book. Oh God, that sounds worse than polling. No, it's, you got to zig where they zag, Galen. Everyone's sort of like microblogging and f-ing social media and shit, man. You got to zoom out, man. Time to zoom out. All right. Well, I'm waiting for a second Nate Silver book. What's it going to be about? I actually am not going to- same thing right now, but you know, there are things churning in my mind. So when the time comes, when and if. Ooh, are we breaking news a second time on this podcast? No, we're, we're, there is no book project. Frankly, like it's the first time I haven't had a big major project to do. And kind of, I got this medium sized project called the Pulse Rings off my desk. So like my brand's like, I want to go get some really good noodles for lunch and then go maybe start thinking about my next big project. Maybe it would be a book or something, but nothing is immediately in the offing. But like, fair enough. But I interrupted you. Yeah. I mean, actually, when I think about I think text messaging is intriguing, right? Because people are probably, well, I don't know. Actually, I don't know if I respond to spam text, but that's maybe a way to like, you can randomize sort of if you have a list of numbers. Although I guess you're now not getting people who have landlines, right? So it becomes a problem. I don't know. There's no like perfect solution. I mean, we said this before, but like the difference between like polling and modeling is becoming murkier and murkier. And that will continue to be the case, I think. Yeah. I keep hedging back and forth between like saying it's always been like this and there have always been like, you know, it's always been a circuitous path and polls have had bad years before. I mean, what happened in 1980 where they underestimated Reagan by seven or eight points or whatever, you know, was polling broken then? So I'm quite agnostic on like whether this is something new or something of a kind and has always been how polling works in the real world. I mean, one thing that's true too, and I kind of tended that before, but like, there's a good argument for like pluralism. It's good that we have phone polls and text polls and IVR polls and online polls. It's good that we have some polls that are very rigorous and maybe some that are 
taking more unusual ad hoc approaches. It's an argument for like aggregation and averaging, I think. We got a second question and then we'll wrap things up. It was, why doesn't everyone just use Ann Seltzer's methods? Which is an interesting question because Ann Seltzer uses live caller polls that call cell phones and landlines. But it's also important to note that she has the highest ranked poll of any of the polls that we assessed, despite the fact that we found that which methodology you use may not be as important as we once thought. So what's up with that? Why is Anselzer still in the lead when methodology seems to be, you know, not the driving force behind quality anymore? Well, first of all, to say that you can't tell that much about poll quality based on methodology is not the same as saying that there isn't higher and lower quality. So one thing we find is that polls that abide by better transparency standards, so polls that are like a part of the APOR Transparency Initiative or contribute data to the Roper Archive, they do actually quite a bit better. So it's not that all things are created equal. And polls have been around longer. Any poll that has less than 20 polls in our database basically gets penalized because like you haven't established a track record. So someone who's very transparent and open about their methodology and has a long track record of success, then you should trust them more. And that definitely describes like Ann Seltzer. Like what does she do that like, other pollsters don't. I mean, I think what she'd say is that you should have her on again because she, again, kind of famously had a poll toward the end of the race that showed Democrats losing ground in Iowa that freaked a lot of Democrats out. I guess somewhat appropriately about Iowa, certainly. She trusts her data. I mean, she doesn't mind being an outlier. She doesn't mind being criticized from like people in parties who are going to be apt to criticize. That's part of it. Like one thing I do worry about with pollsters is In this environment where everyone is online all the time, they're very attuned to the reaction to their polls and people behave in very partisan ways in the middle of election campaigns, right? And so, you know, so I worry a little bit more about groupthink. I wish, and again, we have apologized to Trafalgar, they have an A- minus rating now. I wish that they hadn't been so willing to engage in internet combat and just kind of quietly did their thing, like Ann Seltzer, right? And like, you. We are good at polling. Nate, that's quite the thing for you to say. I don't know, man. I don't know. I think there's like narratives that like it. Come on, you totally argue for standing your ground. I do, but I don't make it personal. Oh, I guess I don't know what Trafalgar was doing online, man. I mean, I guess they're also trying to get attention, but maybe it's not personal, personal, right? But they're trying to like tag me in a lot of stuff and like kind of get me involved and kind of build up. But I will defend my ground, but I don't like I tried really, really hard not to make any kind of personal jobs at anybody. Well, also, I don't know. I mean, I guess I think my job's a little different than that of a pollster. Maybe not. Maybe I should just, I mean, again, probably if polling and Twitter disappeared tomorrow, those are two things that I miss, but, you know, probably would improve my quality of life. Anyway. All right. Is that the note that we're going to end this on? (laughs) I do want to make the standard, like, there are many reasons why it's very important to know kind of what public opinion is. For many reasons, including, by the way, that we are now in a world where at least one of the two major political parties, the Republican Party, is threatening to, like, undermine the integrity of elections in different ways. I hope that America doesn't become one of these third world countries where you have to have polls as a way to kind of audit against the election results. But, like, I don't know if you have in two years or four years or eight years some secretary of state who's willing to stop ballot counting in a certain state, it's nice to have accurate polling to kind of know what some have some other measure of what public opinion thought about an election, right? It's nice for 
President Trump or President Biden to know what kind of people think about an issue. You're trying to carry out, I mean, I'm not like a constitutional scholar. I don't want to get into interpretations of democracy, but, you know, to have some way to understand what the popular will is, apart from it being interpreted by other vessels, I don't want to have to take a politician's word necessarily for what the popular will is in his or her district. I don't want to take the media's word for like, oh, we kind of helicoptered into this district and went to a diner and here's what people think, right? I would much rather kind of see like an actual poll, right? And by the way, there was one big success for polling that we haven't talked about in the 2019-2020 cycle, which is that the polls for almost the entire race showed Joe Biden as the most popular candidate in the Democratic primary. And a lot of my friends, a lot of people in the media thought they knew better. They thought, oh, people in my bubble really like Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg and people like that. And they think that Biden's going to just name recognition. And they were wrong. And that support for Biden was real and was actually concentrated on people who were like underrepresented groups, older voters, minority voters, poorer voters. And the media kind of ignored that and wrote its own narrative. And then the polls were right that Joe Biden would go on to eventually like a fairly commanding victory in the Democratic primary. So that seems like a pretty important example of good use of polling. All right. So polling, a love-hate relationship. Yes. Glad we could end on a more positive note after you were like, if polling would just go away, my quality of life would be so much better. Um, Although Twitter, I feel like you have more control over that. I don't think we need Twitter for democracy. But but, uh, anyway, Nate, I think that's where we'll leave things. And also tell people to go check out the article that you wrote and you can see all of the pollster ratings which a bunch of our colleagues worked very hard on every pollster now has their own page and you can see all of the different polls they've conducted in comparison to how that race turned out etc it's really handy and it's beautiful so folks should go check that out on 538.com but anyway thank you nate thank you galen my name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigary Curtis is on audio editing. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store. Go rate us for real or tell someone about us. That works too. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Like, it'll become a metaphor or a simile, right? Like getting stuck sideways in the Suez Canal. In 60 years, some old-timey person will be like, it's like getting stuck sideways in the Suez Canal. Like, Harry Enten will say that when he's, like, 83. And people are like, what the f*** okay, are you talking about? what does it mean? Like, okay, means- what's the thing that you would say is like getting stuck sideways in the Suez Canal? Like, shit up a creek. It's like you're in the Lincoln Tunnel and there's a traffic jam, right? You're, like, stuck sideways in the Suez Canal. Okay. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.